You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 507 for January 29th, 2020. On today's show, saxophonist Dana Stevens. Right here at the top of the show, let me repeat a little personal news that I mentioned last week. Owen and I are moving to Tucson at the end of February. This is a huge move for us, both geographically, because we currently <laughs> live in Pennsylvania, and also in terms of re-envisioning our lives. And for me, that re-envisioning is all about making this the year the jazz session becomes financially sustainable and also becomes my main occupation. After nearly 13 years and more than 500 episodes, I really do think it's time. Will you help me? Please become a member today for 5 or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. If you can't afford that, I totally get it. But my guess is that most of you probably can and just choose not to do it. And that's not a judgment on you. Most people don't support most things. But if you could make the other choice in this particular case and go to thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Dana Stevens has about 15 new albums coming out this year. Okay, well, actually three, but three's a lot. And the first one of which that we're going to talk about is a trio recording with Ben Street and Eric Harlan called Liberty. Here's how it starts. Stevens, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. Uh, the album, which comes out on February 28th on Contagious Music, is called Liberty. It's a trio record with Ben Street and Eric Harlan. Tell me, just first off, about playing trio and what it's like for you. Uh, I love playing trio. It's um, uh, it's it's very freeing in a way, um, harmonically especially. Um, yeah, you know, when you break it down to just counterpoint, um, I think it, it it just brings an openness feel. And as an improviser, just uh, I, I I feel a little bit more free to express the harmony in a personal way. So, um, yeah, it's just you know, and uh, you know, that's that, that's really all I can say about it. <laughs> I guess this is probably true for all band selection, but it seems like. If you're a horn player and you're going to make a trio record, that who you choose to be with you is incredibly important. Yeah, indeed. 
Indeed. And um, Eric and Ben are, are world-class for a reason. <laughs> um, you know, I love uh, all the different textures and grooves that Eric uh, comes up with. I actually um, uh, have purchased uh, uh, all of his available loops <laughs> um, that are, you know, available through various different platforms. And I often write to, um, and com- meaning compose to, um, a lot of the grooves that he has on his on his loops. So, um, you know, so it felt really at home to to play in a setting with him. But obviously, the loops don't interact with you. So to have him, you know, come up with these new unique grooves for some of these tunes um, was was a real pleasure. And Ben Street is a just a a masterful musician uh, rhythmically and harmonically. And he's just super supportive, but also very spontaneous at the same time in terms of uh, no choice and rhythmic approach in any given situation. And, um, and I love, although he may not like to uh, take solos a lot. I really love his solos. So, (laughs) Um, and uh, you know, Bass is usually the first instrument I choose for any setting, uh, any any band. And um, why is that? He's uh, always um, because it's the harmonic foundation and the rhythmic foundation of of any group, and it really sets the feel for how the you know the, the I, I think how the group sounds and how how solid the the harmony is is displayed. There's so much power in in the bass. Um, I'm actually a bass player myself. I don't know how well known that is, um, but um, and I know just being a bass player in trios or in in larger settings, I've played bass. The difference of me playing, let's say, an A on a C major chord versus a C it completely changes the mood of the harmony. Um, so there's a lot of power there, but also, you know, the the rhythmic pulse and how it feels. Uh, with the drums to me in any band the bass player is always in the pilot seat is in the driver's seat because you know if they're lost then nothing sounds right <laughs> you know <laughs> so at least to me <laughs> some people were able to look past that but I, I always cue in towards the bass for you know personally for knowing where i am in the form of a given tune and also, you know, there, there's some, well, not on this particular record, but on, the, on another record that's coming out later this year, um, there's some situations where we play pretty free. Uh, well, one, one song in particular where we play pretty free. And, you know, that's a completely different role. And the bass is, I think, still very important in that role in determining uh, the direction and, and how the band is spontaneously going to go from here to there or Bass is the place, man. <laughs> and you made a reference to contrapuntal playing, and in the case of a trio record where it's saxophone, bass, and drums, it's essentially two single line instruments navigating around each other all the time. And whichever notes you exactly. both land on at the same, you know, at any particular moment, I mean, that completely defines the harmony for us, the listener, where we are in the tune. And I imagine for you exactly. as a player as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I. You know, two part Bach two part inventions are some of my favorite stuff to listen to, just because of the simplicity of the two voice, two voices playing two different notes could imply several different harmonies. It doesn't necessarily even. Um, I mean, context will tend the ear to 
choose a particular harmony, but um, there's a lot of possible surprises and um, unchartered territories that you can go uh, when you when you reduce it down to just two two instruments, uh, two harmonic instruments, I should say. mentioned uh eric's you know incredible sense of creating beats and i mean there's almost right from the top uh on the second i think it's the second track faith leap there's yeah. a, just this incredible beat that he sets up which is, is kind of a a rethinking of john coltrane's giant steps but if you didn't know right. that and you know it it certainly took me uh, more than one time through to think oh wait a minute <laughs> i now i see what's going on here but the just the whole kind of feeling and like sonic space he sets up with his groove on that track i mean and everywhere in the album but that track kind of jumped out at me as a place where his impact i mean just completely makes the setting for the for the piece yeah totally and and honestly i i if i remember correctly i think that's the only take we took of that tune oh wow and i didn't know that that was the groove he was going to do before i counted it <laughs> off so it was just uh I was pretty much having on, on that track. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I love what he comes up with on the spot like that. So. You know, we all have our own frame of reference for any particular kind of ensemble and for me when i think of saxophone trio and this is just because it's the first saxophone trio record i ever heard i immediately go to sonny rollins way out west uh, which is what introduced me to the the sound of a saxophone trio and i still think you know is a really incredible record i wonder do you have any particular touchstones for you when it comes to the sound of a saxophone trio that's very funny you mentioned that man i i have neglected to pinpoint that as as a very significant record in, in my history. And it actually is, but I, you know, I think of Sonny Rollins live with the Vanguard. Um, I think of the various trio records that Joe Henderson made. Um, I think of trio GP, um, by Bramford. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, triology is huge. I've been listening to that recently, actually, again, uh, by Kenny Garrett. I don't know of Wayne in a trio setting, to be honest. I would love to hear it, but Chris Potter did a trio record. I think it's actually Scott Colley's record, though, or maybe Bill Stewart's record. But uh, yeah, but but anyway, those those, those first, you know, Joe, Joe Han and, and Sonny Rollins especially <clears throat> are the ones that that really stick out to me. And there's a couple, there's a few trio tracks on Lush Life, if I'm not mistaken, on Coltrane. I remember there's a like someone to love uh, trio version that he does there. So, 
Yeah, I, I, I've always loved the openness of, of that sound. And to be honest, I should really mention that uh, I'm a student of Hal Crook. Um, he's a teacher up at, or, or excuse me, retired now, but he was a teacher up at Berkeley College of Music. And he put out a few trio records. One in particular I remember is called Only Human. And it's just, you know, trombone, bass, and drums. And that's that's also, for me, not very well known, but a huge, huge influence uh, on, on, on my love of uh, trio playing. Let's take a quick break from my conversation with Dana to remind you that the Jazz Session really is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It started back when very few people knew what a podcast was, and almost everybody thought you needed an iPod to listen to one. Nearly 13 years later, I don't even know if iPods still exist, but I do know that the Jazz Session does. However, I'd like to be able to do even more with it than I do right now. As you've heard during the course of the last year or so, most of the Jazz Session has been done on the phone as opposed to in person. And I can do a lot more in-person interviews and more coverage of things like festivals if the Jazz Session brought in more contributions from the many, many, many people who listen to it. It's possible for me to do more only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. And if you do, please go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or 10 bucks a month. You get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and a whole lot more. Thanks so much for being here for the last 13 years. Please become part of the next 13 by becoming a member. Now back to the show. A, a track on this record, The Lost and Found, uh, that I first heard, I don't know, in 2010 or 11, it was the title track of a Gretchen Parlato record that I, I really right. loved and, and love to this day. And I know you've recorded it before as well, and now it's here on Liberty in trio form. When you're when you're kind of reimagining a tune like that, going going back to the well on a, on a tune that you've had a chance to record before, what were you looking for in, in this version? Did you just, did you hear the possibility for something that you hadn't explored yet? Well, I played it on baritone on this record. Um, and it was in quartet form on my first record, um, which actually coincidentally also has Eric and Ben, um, but with Taylor Ixty and, and Schofield on a few, a uh, couple of tracks. Um, so, uh, and I really, you know, when I first wrote the, well, actually when I write most of my tunes, I start off with just the counterpoint. And I don't really think about the chords until after I've made the counterpoint sound the way I like it. I, I wanted to do a version that was like that, you know, just purely stripped down, and and it, which would bring out more of the rhythmic stuff that Eric is doing, actually. Which is, you know, if you listen to both versions back to back, the uh, quartet version with Taylor Ixty and this version, they're they're, they're a lot different, <laughs> very different. If you're focused on counterpoint when you're writing, does that mean that you're writing on the saxophone or on the bass as opposed to at the piano? Or something? Uh, I write p on piano probably most, and I would say I write at the bass 
seconds. Um, for some reason, I there's maybe one song that I can remember that I wrote on saxophone. It's called Contagious, which happens to be the uh, the name of my record label, Contagious Music. But that's you know I I, I can hear and mess around with the two voices on the piano, and that that's it. Just I always go there for for hearing it. We haven't mentioned it in this interview, and I don't want it to be the main focus of the interview because I know it's been the main focus of your life, <laughs> or was for quite a while. Um, but yeah. you now are are healthy um, after a, uh, you know a real challenging um, period with some some kidney issues that a lot of folks in the jazz world will know about. But uh, I'm just wondering what what the effect of kind of you know being back in your in your body more maybe more fully and and more capably what impact that has on the music you're writing and the way you're playing these days there's not a day that doesn't go by where i'm super happy not to be in that situation that i was before um and my stamina is obviously very uh improved since uh being on on dialysis but you know i listened to records i did during that period which is you know the bulk of my (laughs) recording uh history it's interesting. I have a lot more stamina and a lot more ability to play things than I did at that point to play, you know, play more <laughs> with more breath. And so I find myself having to be a bit more conscious about, about leaving space. Cause I actually liked in a weird way, the way I was forced to be a bit more patient, um, when I, when I wasn't in the best of health. Um, and I find myself listening back to some gigs, uh, maybe, um, this is maybe just a little bit of self-criticism I, I probably shouldn't <laughs> dive into, but, but, um, you know, I, I, I find myself telling, telling myself to, uh, like chill out <laughs> a little bit and, uh, um, you know, take some, take some space to really digest what just happened um, so, you know, it, there's a lot more energy and I haven't gotten used to taming it in a way, um, you know, the, I, way, the way it was forced to be tamed before. So, you know, and I think anybody listening, although at a, unless you've had serious health problems like you've had, I think anybody listening will have had the experience of like you know, getting a cold or getting the flu. And when you start to feel better, you immediately do way more than you should because you're just so happy not, not to be in that situation you were in before. And then obviously if you yeah. dial that up, you know, 25,000 times to, you know, a life threatening illness that lasts for years. Uh, I can only imagine oh. that when you come out the other side of that, you're like, Oh, I'm doing everything <laughs> right now all at the same time. Yeah, I can. <laughs> That's, a great uh metaphor i think it's it's very similar to that but you know at the bottom line I'm, I'm really really enjoying playing these days and um having the ability to to travel a lot more than i did before and and do records for christ's sake <laughs> Thank you. 
You mentioned Hal Crook just a few minutes ago, and I, I yeah. he's one of those people who's kind of like in the the periphery of my awareness. Like I know he existed, and um, I've heard some music that he made, but I just don't. Still does I, exist. Yeah, but... yeah. Sorry, yeah, it still <laughs> does exist. I'm sorry, uh, and I just don't know a ton about him and i'm curious about uh you know he seemed to be someone who as you mentioned had some uh, some impact on you from your studies will you just say something about studying with him and and how you found value in it yeah i just really appreciate um appreciated the way that he personalized his um his his uh his teaching to the student it wasn't like a a cookie cutter approach um but he he also kind of uh, to some people's liking to some people's unliking has broken down the art of improvisation into smaller little bits and parts. Um, and kind of has each student focus on whatever part they kind of perhaps need to, to work on, um, the most. Now, some people can feel that's a little too scientific and that's, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for here, but, methodical perhaps too too brainy um not as much intuitive and i i will admit that some some people can take that and and really become a a little bit mechanical i guess but i've always seen these as tools or like you know vocabulary or or tools or different perspectives of looking at improvisation that that i could use but not to use those as the focus but just to give me better ability to tell a compelling story while I'm improvising. So I, I've, I, I hope I'm not sounding very mechanical when I play. I don't, you know, I've not had that response from people, but I, I've just found that approach of breaking the different aspects of, of improvisation up into smaller parts. Like, you know, for example, displacement or how you're going to articulate something or, little things you might do harmonically and really working on those and then having them become, you know, comfortable in a part of your, your being and, and, and not necessarily, you know, and, and putting them in context in the musical setting. It's like having maybe more words to express a particular feeling than having a smaller vocabulary, just having more words to express more precisely perhaps uh, what you're trying to convey. Um, that's that's kind of the way I, I I've seen Hal's teaching. So oh, that's um, really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, I can go on and on about Hal. But, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that very much. You mentioned yeah. uh, another album that's coming soon after Liberty, uh, which I haven't heard, so I, I can't ask you about it. F you know, in the context of having heard any of the music, but can you tell us something about it? Yeah. Um. So we recorded uh, Liberty at the end of January. Actually, almost a year to the day. It was 26th of January last year um, at Rudy Van Gelder's studio. And and I knew, you know, I had planned before to have a quartet in the following February at the Village Vanguard. Um, and it, it just occurred to me about two weeks before the before the show that, you know, it would be awesome to also record that group, which is, you know, ben, Ben's on that, Ben Street's on that record, um, but... In, on drums on this record is on, on the, excuse me, on the, on the live record is uh, Gregory Hutcherson and on piano is Aaron Park. So it's a, it's a very different setting again than the trio. Although there are about four tunes that overlap, but they're, they're really done completely different in, in that setting. It, you can imagine just 
that uh, trio, that that group. Um, I, I was very pleased with the results of of what we recorded that uh, Saturday and Sunday night at the Vanguard. So um, that will be coming out April twenty eighth, or excuse me, April twenty fourth. Uh, exactly eight weeks after uh, Liberty. So. So you recorded back-to-back albums at Rudy Van Gelder's studio and a live album at the Village Vanguard, and yet it is uh, it is the year 2020, not the year 1964 or whatever. That is a pretty awesome twofer right there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that. It's true, yeah. <laughs> Now, I, of course, like anybody, I'm familiar with Rudy Van Gelder's studio. Any, you know, anybody who's into jazz, I mean, you know, so much seminal music was recorded there, and I've seen pictures, but I've never set foot inside it. Is there still an aura of, oh my God, when oh, you man. step in a room like that? Undoubtedly, man. It was, it was, you know, you, you walked into, a, or you drove onto the lot of a piece of history, and then you walk into that room and you see the ceiling, and, uh, and you you clap your hands and you feel the the size of that room and to um, to record there was just you know was was amazing it was amazing so. moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible starting with the people who support it and also the respect sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and dave rabel for the logo chuck ingersoll is the voice of the intro you can hire him at hearchucknow.com follow the jazz session on twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h and on instagram at the jazz session i've started posting a photo each weekday from the 20 plus years of jazz shows and interviews that i've attended and and conducted and i think you might find those cool so go follow me on social media Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the show. I have been in the Vanguard many times, and I think that place still feels like like you, you could turn around and just see anybody walk through the door from all throughout the history of jazz. I mean, it, all, it always still feels very immediate to me, and I don't mean that in a way that it feels mired in the past. I just feel like the past is very much alive at the same time as the present is alive when you're in the Vanguard. And of course, I've yeah. never been on stage there. I've just been in the audience, but that feels very real to me. No, that's that's a beautiful way of putting it. I, I strongly, uh, you know, relate to that to that sentiment, man. It's, you know, it it doesn't that feeling doesn't go away. <laughs> you know, I was just there, well, I don't know, a month ago or so with Kenny Barron's um, quartet. I've been there a number of times with different groups over the years, and it, that feeling of 
of feeling uh, the past doesn't, you know, just, it doesn't go away. There's a lot of amazing moments that have happened in that place, recorded or not recorded, you know, um, and, and a, a diverse section of the jazz community in history is, has, has, has played on that stage. And, uh, you know, it's consistently makes me a, a tad bit nervous every time I'm there. So it's, uh, it, it's never lost on me, the importance of that, of that room. It's a special thing to, to, and a special honor to have been able to, uh, make a record there. So. This podcast has bonus episodes for uh, folks who are financial supporters. And on a recent one, the jazz journalist Richard Shaden was on, and he was talking about he was talking about McCoy oh, Tyner in particular, and about seeing him at the Vanguard in the seventies. And while McCoy and the band were playing, this is a band that had uh, Sunny Fortune in it, and they were uh, they were playing, and then all of a sudden, like almost as one, the whole crowd just turned around. It look, looked away from the stage and so Richard along with everybody else turned around and, and Miles Davis came through the door and sat down behind him and I just think like how many times there have been those kind of moments you know in the vanguard over the years and it just I mean like it gives me the chills even to think about it and I you know I've I've been, certainly been there at times when jazz luminaries have walked in while I've been sitting there who weren't playing who were just you know just coming to see what was happening on stage and it, it's just I mean it's it's like a you know a cathedral of jazz. It's like a holy space, you know, for our for our music for sure. Yeah, or or even someone like Cornell West, you know, or yeah, or actors, and you know, it's it's not even you know, it's 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 a it's a it's an icon of the city, man. Absolutely of the of the scene, actually. So. You mentioned that on the Vanguard recording is Aaron Parks, and although he doesn't play on Liberty, uh, there is uh, one of his tunes. I just I love his writing, and uh, there's a, a piece of his called "Planting Flowers" that's on Liberty in the in yeah. the trio format. Uh, tell me how this tune ended up on here. I've just I've loved this tune from the second I played it with him. I actually don't remember exactly. It's been so long. I don't remember exactly where we performed it. But I remember being at his in his mom's house when we rehearsed it for the first time, and it was just uh, instantly just like, okay, that's that's a standard. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the way it just came out in my mind, you know, immediately. Like this is just a perfect tune. Um, it's also going to be on the live record. Um, and he takes a beautiful intro that leads us into that. And, uh, you know, I recorded it trio once with uh, another couple of cats that on, on a record that it, it never came out. And I've always listened to that track saying, like, this, this song needs to be recorded. So he also wrote that song when he was 15 years old, by the way. Yeah, that's so obnoxious. <laughs> which is amazing <laughs> um, in itself. So... <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm not sure that the next thing I'm going to say is true, but I'm going to say it anyway. It feels to me like there are two kinds of jazz records. There's the kind where the whole record was recorded, and then afterwards, they uh, the artist just came up with a bunch of random collections of words for the titles. And then there's the kind of jazz record where every single tune has some kind of story behind it. And this Liberty yeah. feels like it's in the latter camp, where everything has some kind of uh, spirit or story or, or context uh, underlying these pieces. You can, of course, correct me if that, that's not true. But it feels very much that way to me. Like, these all, there's somebody in your mind or someplace or, you know, uh, a particular story you want to tell that inspires your writing, is at least the impression that I get. Uh, most definitely. There, I'm trying to think if I've written tunes that are just, um, you know, there's maybe a couple of tunes I've written that didn't have, like, some kind of uh, connection to something tangible to it. Uh, when I started writing it, but usually, you know, usually I come up, there, there's some, some, uh, some in, spark of inspiration that starts the, the melody. So Dana, as we mentioned this, uh, the record, the trio record Liberty comes out on February 28th. And then about eight weeks later, the quartet record comes out. Are there going to be opportunities for people to see you live uh, around the time of these releases? Yes, we're doing a tour right around the release actually. Uh, starting in Denver um, at Dazzle on the 26th of February, then Kumbo Jazz on the 27th, and then 28th and 29th at um, uh, the Blue Whale in Los Angeles. And, and just to be clear, these are all uh, February 2020 dates that you're saying right now, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, good, good point. <laughs> well, you know, 29th, I think it's, it's only going to be this year. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Next yep. year. So it might be able to help a little bit with that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, on the first, we'll be uh, up in Seattle um, for Earshot uh, Jazz Festival. And then that's that's it for now. We're working on some dates for the trio uh, for a release date in New York coming up um, as well. But there's many things on the burner. So and so that trio tour that you just laid out—that's with Ben and Eric. Um, that is with Eric, and unfortunately Ben um, couldn't make this tour, and we've got Harish Raghavan. Um, well, that's instead, just fine. Who is yeah. absolutely <laughs> no slouch. No, not not at all. <laughs> that's uh, that's just a lateral move, if if anything at all. Yes, yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, now. Uh, off the off the mic, you happened to mention in passing that there's actually a third record coming out that uh, I didn't even know existed. So, uh, will you tell us something? What's what's up with that? What's the third record like? One of the later developments in the instruments that I play is called the Iwi. It's appeared, uh, you know, sporadically on different albums. Um, a lot of people of, might associate Michael comic. Brecker with it, for example. So. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, the electronic wind instrument is also called, or wind controller, some people call it. I have a record coming out in June that mainly features that instrument. And it's actually a collaborative record. Uh, there's a drummer you may know called Anthony Fong, oh, yeah. who was in, in the Monk Institute. He's from Toronto. So we uh, did a trio gig, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. And he invited me to come up to the Rex uh, venue up in Toronto um, uh, to you know to, pl to play a gig, and he hired um, Rich Brown, really great, fantastic uh, electric bass player, and a young guitarist Andrew Marzotto uh, 
just burning really really great guitar player and uh we played a gig uh second of january last year and we all really clicked loved it decided to play again in june um the toronto jazz festival at the rex again uh then on that date we decided we should make a record so we booked another date our third gig in 2019 at the rex in october and right after that we went into the studio so we're in the process right now of mixing that and i'm just really super super excited about that record it's just very different than anything um i've done um thus did he far. hire you to play the yeah. ewe or was that an idea you had or how, i mean how did it turn out that that's the the primary uh instrument you're using on that album i bring ewe with me on any gig regardless and it just so happened that on the first gig we did, I mostly played Ewe. I had I had tenor with me. Um, we hadn't really written the songs for this record at that point, so there was it was probably about half and half tenor and, and Ewe. Um, and then as you know, we played in June. It was a little bit more Ewe. We kind of dug that that vibe. And then in in um, October, really only played one or two songs on saxophone. It ended up being mostly Ewe. So this project, uh, there's really only there's one song that I play, uh, soprano sax on, but everything else is ewe guitar, electric bass, and drums. And uh, I contributed uh, what five tunes, and uh, Anthony contributed five tunes. So um, we're we're both super like juiced to uh, put this out. And I, speaking of juice, the name of the group is called Pluto Juice. By the way, also. <laughs> Um, and when are we going to hear this? I wrote called... Say again? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just asked, when are we going to hear this? No uh, It's going to be sometime at the end of June. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There was a song, I was going to say, there's a song I wrote called uh, Approaching Pluto that kind of became the feature song of the, of the group. So it's just kind of a play on that, on that, on that title, Approaching Pluto. And it's very spacey, as you can imagine, with with the uh, the electric the electric instruments. So, yeah. And are you like me, uh, bitter about the fact that Pluto is no longer a planet? I am not bitter at <laughs> all by that. I mean, it's a freaking classification. The the the, the rock itself doesn't give you know <laughs> a rat's rump about what the what the hell it's called. So uh, that's <laughs> you know great. What I mean? <laughs> All these records that we've been talking about today are coming out uh, on your own label, Contagious Music. Isn't that right? Right, Contagious Music. Um, 
which I formulated, I think, in 2007 to release my first record and really kind of set on it um, until uh, 2017, my last release, um, Gratitude. And then soon after that, um, I released a record by Eden Ledeen, a great pianist from Israel. Um, his record's called Yakum, and um, that did very well. I'm really happy with that. And then, so the trio record, the live record, and the Pluto Juice will be uh, coming out also on Contagious Music. So, yeah. So it sounds like you, like many modern musicians, you know, need to wear many hats, including that of label manager, because that's kind of just the way the world is now, right? Indeed. And uh, I'm also learning Photoshop, which has been very <laughs> challenging, but also very cool because I, I, uh, I love art, you know, creating art in many different ways. So there you go. My guest for this episode has been Dana Stevens. Uh, as you've heard, he's got a bunch of new records coming out in this year, 2020. The one that we've mostly been focused on and that you've been hearing excerpts from is Liberty on his own Contagious Music with Ben Street and Eric Harland. Also, a live uh, record recorded at the Village Vanguard and the uh, the cool quartet record Pluto Juice we heard about. Dana, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope you'll come back, and it sounds like we'll have no shortage of stuff to talk about if you do. <laughs> Anytime, man. Appreciate it, Jason. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Dana Stevens. Until next time, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody!